Well, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll continue our study of this amazing epistle that God has given us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. And we'll look at a second sermon on this section in verses 4 to 6 when 7 times 1 equals 1. These seven affirmations of the oneness of our doctrinal solidarity that equal our oneness with each other. As you're turning there, we have a typical, uh, almost every Saturday, I don't know if it's a ritual, but the occurrence that happens, I'm sitting around, uh, usually it's mow, mow the grass day and do some yard work, and I come in, I'm noodling around on my, my sermon. Usually it's pretty close to finished at that point, and just doing some editing. And I uh, was doing some editing yesterday. My, my typical notes are a low of 12, 13 pages, a high of like 18. In fact, today's is 18. Um, and I looked over at Kim and I said, honey, I'm in, I'm, I need, I need, I'm, I'm in trouble. And she said, she knew what to say. She said, what page are you on? I said, 27. And so we're not going to finish this text today. <laughs> it's going to take us one more session, but I just want to tell you the rich depth of these doctrinal affirmations are incredible. Many have said that Ephesians is made up of doctrine and praxis or practical. The first three are doctrine. The, the last three chapters are practical. I don't know how you can get any more doctrinal than what we're studying in verses 4 to 6. In order to get that in context, though, let me read verses 1 through 6, which is all a part of the same unit. Paul says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity among believers in Jesus Christ is one of the most important doctrines to understand and apply. At the same time, it's one of the most difficult to understand and apply. How would you articulate in a sentence or two the doctrine of Christian unity? Jesus prayed for it on the night before his crucifixion. A new commandment I give you, John 13 says, that you love one another, that you dwell in unity. Let me give you a working kind of understanding or definition. True Christian unity is not just a condition of people getting along. True Christian unity is not just a condition of people getting along with each other. It is a situation where believers joyfully, assertively, and uncompromisingly cooperate in worshiping, 
and serving Lord Jesus. A situation where believers joyfully, assertively, and uncompromisingly cooperate in worshiping and serving Lord Jesus. Now, in order to understand what Christian unity is, we're going to have to get a little bit theological for the next few minutes, and and I trust that you will have no trouble with this. There are two layers of Christian unity, one Catholic and one local. No, not Roman Catholic. Work with me here for a minute. One Catholic and one local. They speak to the universal church and the local church, the invisible church and the visible church. But the word that can be confusing is the word Catholic. What do we mean when we say that there is to be a Catholic unity in the church? Let me say for the second time, no, I'm not speaking to Roman Catholicism or Roman Catholic thinking. The word Catholic just means universal. It refers to the universal or the invisible church, all believers worldwide. Roman Catholicism is actually an oxymoron. Roman is local in Rome. Catholicism is universal. So local, universal. It doesn't even make sense as a title. A little background will help. The first major church council was held in the city of Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was called by Constantine in 325 AD, AD 325, because there was some confusion over the deity and the humanity of Christ. Was he in a created being, or was he in existence for all eternity, which we hold to? So they called a, the best theologians of the day into this city in Nicaea. The primary goal was to deal with the nature of Jesus, his humanity, his deity. It also established a standard for Christian orthodoxy at the time. It was the first statement or creed of orthodox theology in the history of the church. What they walked away with was what we call the Nicene Creed, which later became the Apostles' Creed. And it established a pattern for later councils to create statements, belief canons of doctrinal orthodoxy. The intent being to define the unity of beliefs for the whole of Christendom. Now, you probably know well the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Let me, let me read it to you. And listen carefully at how precise and simple this articulation is. And I'm reading you the whole thing just to get to the last sentence. This was their conclusion. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped 
and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. And then this sentence. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. That little phrase, we believe in one holy, universal, Catholic, invisible church, an apostolic church. Can I say it for a fourth time? That is not a reference to Roman Catholicism. It's a reference to the fact that we share in common a faith with many believers over the course of church history in the ages. We share a common like-minded faith with men and women who would not sign our doctrinal statement. There's a universal church and it's defined by biblical standards and by the gospel. Now, though Nicaea is helpful, it's still less than Scripture and less clear than Scripture, less authority than Scripture. And what we read in Ephesians 4, 4 4-6 is a, a creed of sorts, these seven statements about one, these descriptions of Christian orthodoxy or beliefs that define what a true Christian believes, is committed to, and holds to. And these beliefs are to be embraced catholically, universally, by all believers because they are in the living word of God. Now let me say something that needs some explanation, but follow me here. The most important things about our church, Mission Road Bible Church, are not the things that are different from other true churches. Usually we we major on what we are distinct from from other churches, and we certainly should hold those issues as precious and true. The most important things about our church are not the things that are different from other true churches that distinguish us from other bodies, but the most important things about our church are the things that are in common with all believers and true about the gospel. As we said last week, common allegiances to greater things override uncommon differences in lesser things. And you should ask them, what's the greater things? These seven statements are the greater things. They are the things that bind us to Christ in his body, in his church, just as they do every true believer around the globe, regardless of what they, uh, how they're different from us in the nuances of our theology. If you believe the gospel, you are under this umbrella. But let me say it this, this way. To believe, to disbelieve any of these statements is not to be a Christian. It's to deny the very essence of what it means to be a believer in the gospel. Paul's been teaching this lesson to the Ephesians in the first three chapters. Despite their extreme differences between Jews and Gentiles, both groups had come together to to, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus. They had different diets, different backgrounds, different weekends, different ways of raising their children, different ways to dress. Everything about their lives were different. And God put them in the same church, sitting in the same pew, worshiping the same Lord, and said he had forged unity between them, and they were to preserve it. That powder keg of possible Christian disunity was to be overcome 
And they were to show the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's unity in the bond of peace to the world. And make no mistake, especially in Ephesus, where there was a distinct Jewish society and culture and a distinct Gentile, Greek society and culture, when they did the same things in the same church and got along and loved each other and cared for each other, that got the world's attention. So today, Paul's lesson here is that our unity, we're going to study unity down through verse 16. Our unity should catch the attention of the world as we love and serve each other despite our backgrounds that are different, despite our preferences that are different. We should work together. So after teaching the Ephesians that God has unified them, forged a unity with the cost of Jesus' blood in chapters 1 to 3, he turns to instruct them on how to work that out in chapter 4. Now, he's not talking about that unity, this kind of a sappy emotionalism. We just kind of like each other and, and we're buddies. It's not unity at any price. Unity is firmly based on the fundamentals of biblical truths in the gospel. And that's what he outlines here in these simple three verses. What does it mean to have corporate unity? It starts with your attitudes in verses 1 through 3. He tells them that having humility, having gentleness, being gracious, patience, tolerant of each other, loving each other, those are the heart attitudes that you have to have to pursue this kind of unity that is articulated in verses 4 to 6. By the way, there's a substructure that's kind of here too. There are seven statements that all begin with the word one, 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 one. But there's also a structure that looks at the Trinity, which we'll look at in our next study, which is beginning with the Spirit. Then he goes to the Son, which we'll see today, and then he finishes with the Father. And that's an important theological overlay to understand that we'll come back and stitch together next week. But for now, let's jump in. We got three of these seven doctrinal commitments that preserve unity in the church uh, studied last time, and today we'll add two more. Seven doctrinal commitments that preserve unity in the church. Let me say again, this doesn't generate unity and preserve that the Spirit, by coming and invading our life, creates a unity within the church. It's ours to preserve it, not mess it up. He begins where we would expect him to begin. His favorite illustration, Paul's favorite illustration, common commitment to one body. So when we see one, that one means a common commitment, a singular focus with all of us together. One commitment to one body. Verse 4, there is one body, and we noted last time that the words there is is not in the original Greek uh, if you have a New American Standard, it's in italics. That is an indicator that it was added. There, there's nothing wrong with this addition. It makes sense in English. But the power and the force of this passage really is seen better without the supplied words. It's explanatory. He comes out of verse 3, being diligent, making every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, one body, one spirit, one, one, one. This is how it's explained. This is how you do it. It's the theology that undergirds our unity. 
There's a connection between the unity of the Spirit in verse 3 and all of these one statements that are repeated seven times. So when seven times one equals one, all these seven words of one, 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 one equal our oneness in common community and common commitment to our doctrine. Paul's favorite analogy of, of the church is a body. And I think it's his favorite because it's the one he explains the deepest and uses the most. Oh, he calls us a field and a, a temple and a building. But he loves the idea of a body, a physical body, a human body. And is, is fully explained in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he says, Christ is the head giving the instructions and we are body parts, which is the word members. We're members. He actually gets so specific that he, he says some are hands, some are noses, some are ears, some are feet. He actually illustrates the fact that they talk to each other and say, I'm better than you. I'm not as good as you. He actually goes on further and says there's the showy parts and the inward parts, your organs, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines, and then there's the outward parts, the skin and the face and the hair that you can see. Even the showy parts and the unshowy parts and all the individual parts should not degradate each other. They, they should all love each other, care for each other. First Corinthians 12, 14, he says, There is one body, but many members. First Corinthians 12, 27, You are Christ's body, individually members of it, individually parts of it. And again, repeating, this is just review. It's a picture of how we're to relate to one another, how we view one another, how we consider one another. It would be absurd to speak of any parts of our body that are jealous of the other or critical of the other. Paul wants you to feel that absurdity in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians where he, he gives them voice. And if you were to go over to someone's house this afternoon and they were sitting on the couch and you said, you're not going to believe what my foot said to my hand. He says, I really don't need you. You would go, that's odd. And that's the point. We all need each part. We're to preserve our unity just as a body preserves its own health. We're a common body, all committed to one another in one body. And we looked at that in some depth. Secondly, we considered the fact that we have a common commitment to one spirit. Here we're introduced to the first member of the Trinity in this little three-verse triad, and one spirit. We saw that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I think the, the nearest antecedent is obviously in verse 3, being diligent or making every effort, all of your energies to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit, is the one who generates the unity of believers. You say, unity in what way? Well, when you compare the Jews and the Gentiles, it's basically people who have no reason to associate, to cooperate, to worship, to serve together, except the gospel. And instead of that being a negative, it's actually a positive because it shows the world that the gospel trumps all preferences, all differences. And we can cooperate in worshiping and serving Christ. The Spirit generates that. We have one Spirit, one supernatural motivation, one generator of our unity, Jew, Gentile, Red and yellow, black and white, no matter what country, what culture we were raised in. 
were committed to one spirit, the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit. Paul's emphasis here is that we have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit, Jew or Gentile, no matter what our backgrounds are, and it's our common theology that he generates, that he teaches, that as the writer of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit articulates, that brings the unity of the Spirit that bonds us together, and we have peace. We have peace because we believe in the same things. We have the same doctrine. Doctrine can divide, but as R.C. Sproul says, doctrine mostly unifies. So this unity is His, the Spirit's, and our common commitment to Him is essential for our unity. Third, again, just review, a common commitment to one hope. This is such a precious and a sweet reality. Verse 4 at the end, just as also you were all redeemed, you were called, you were given the ability to believe the gospel, you were called to him in one singular common hope of your calling. Hope is one of the most encouraging dimensions of the Christian faith, and we share it with each other. The soul without hope will wither. And what is our hope? Well, we'll see this later in Ephesians. We've already seen it a little bit. Our, our, our main hope is, is heaven. It's heaven. Our common hope is because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Every believer that dies after our death will enter into eternal life in heaven. That's our hope. Not wishful thinking, but certain thinking. We have hope because we know it will happen, not hope that we might expect, hopefully it might happen. No. We have a common ending with each other to our lives, a common destination. We're all going to heaven. I was singing yesterday, and some of my family was making a little bit of fun of me because I went back to my old Baptist roots. This whole thing was just making me sing. We're marching to Zion. How, how many of you remember that? Marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching onward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. So we're marching. We're on our way to heaven. Tears will go away. Suffering will cease. Troubles will be gone. And he will be there with us. We'll see him face to face like you and I talk as friends we will know him as we are known no more faith no more faith it will all be sight and we're going there with each other Paul said in Ephesians 1 18 I pray that your eyes having been opened your heart having been enlightened you will know, have confidence in what is the hope of his calling. How do we know that's heaven? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? That's what we'll inherit and he will inherit us as his blood-bought children. It's a joy for us as um, an elder team to pray every Friday morning for for our church, we go through the role and we just pray for you. We, we, we talk about you behind your back. <laughs> we pray specifically for things that we know about. 
I was thinking about that yesterday and praying for a couple of beloved people in our church. And it, it's humbling to think of our common hope that some people, some people in our church and some people in this room right now know that they're measuring the remainder of their life by weeks or months, maybe a year. Others are measuring the remainder of their life in years and decades. And others are brand new and have their full life ahead of them. But we're all marching to Zion as believers. There's an end, which is not the end. It's, it's the beginning of real life. This is just a shadow. We have a common, singular hope because of Christ. And if you don't know Christ, I would beg you to consider what it means to know the gospel and not be left behind at his appearing and not... not experience eternal separation from him in hell, a real torturous hell because you refuse to embrace the gift he's given in the gospel. We have one hope, and it's, it's his hope, which makes sense. What do you think the next one would be? Now we get into our study today. Common commitment to one Lord. Our main number one focused hope is heaven, but heaven is not glorious because it's a better place. Heaven is glorious because Jesus is there and we know him and want to see him and he's meaningful to us now by faith and we long to see him by sight. He is what's the, the draw of heaven, not just the cessation of difficulty and the enjoyment of pleasure, as wonderful as those realities are, and they are pleasures that are real. In his hands are pleasures forever, Psalm 16. But they're in his hand. He's the one we look to. One Lord. Remember, this sevenfold doctrinal confession is a theological structure around the three persons of the Trinity. We just saw the Spirit. Now we see Jesus, who is the Lord. How do we know this is the Lord? Well, look back at chapter 1, verse 3. Let's see how clear this is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Explicit. You go throughout the rest of chapter 1, it's Jesus who provides the lordship over our redemption. He provides the lordship over our forgiveness. And the point Paul is making here is that both Jew and Gentile, regardless of your background, regardless of your preferences, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your height, regardless of anything, if you are a human, there's one Lord for you. One Lord. Lord is a translation of the Greek word kurios, which means master, as in master to a slave, but it was more than that. From the earliest times, the disciples called Jesus Lord. Now, they didn't have a relationship with him as slaves in the sense... And by the way, when we talk about biblical slavery, don't think of America, the torturous, horrific event of, of American slavery. That's not what's in mind here. It's, it was people had servants who, who that was their job, Oh, they were mistreated. Many of them were, but it was a different context than we understand as American slavery. Also, the word Lord meant a disciple or a teacher. 
They called him Lord and walked around with him for three years. But, but it wasn't that he, he had property that he had them manage. He had no property. <laughs> he was their teacher, master. He was the one who told them who to be and what to do because he had authority to do so. And they saw that answering those summons was the best that life could offer. As again, Jesus was known as Lord from the very earliest disciples. Acts 2, 3, 2, 36, Peter's first sermon, listen to this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, Christ. Who are you talking about? This Jesus whom you crucified. I love the implication of the resurrection He's talking about a man who was dead. He just said he was crucified. You crucified him, but he has made him Lord and Christ. You don't do that to someone in the grave. (laughs) Acts 10, 36. Peter, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Then he says this. He is Lord, master over all. Not just the Lord of those who are saved, but he's Lord over everything. And one day will come with his robe dipped in blood and claim his right to this earth. Philippian jailer, Acts 16, 31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to the Philippian jailer. You will be saved, you and your household. The Lord Jesus, the Lord, the master. Acts 19, 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, now we're back in our context, and fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. I love Paul's description to the the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords in our life, yet for us, There is but one God. We're coming back to this in our next study, by the way. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And then this, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. This is significant. Paul says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says... Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So if you believe and receive the fact that Jesus is your master and your Lord, that is an evidence of the Spirit of God who would cause you to conclude that, cause you to confess that, and cause you to respond to that. Remember, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Romans 11 says that Gentile believers are grafted into this olive tree, which is the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham. He chops off the natural one because the Jews rejected him. He takes the unnatural, the branch of the Gentiles, and grafts that into the tree. And one day we'll take the natural branch and graft it back in. It's a picture of our unity. We all have the same Lord, the promise of the covenant made to Abraham. 
And with multiple people in the same church with different backgrounds as well as different spiritual gifts, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 5, there are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. It's a big deal that Jesus is called Lord. I think it rolls off our tongues so frequently and so familiarly, which is fine, that we, we can forget the full impact and meaning that Jesus is Lord. Why? Well, over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, we've studied this in recent months. We find out that God gave Jesus a name after the explanation of his humility, his set is uh, kenosis, emptying himself, laying aside the use of some of his divine attributes temporarily in his incarnation. Paul says, for this reason, his humility, God highly exalted him. And God bestowed on Jesus the name which is above every name. And then how, how important grammar is, verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, it's a possessive, it's a genitive in the Greek. Jesus' name, not the name Jesus, that's in a positive. It would be phrased completely different. By the way, I, I love the name Jesus. I, Jesus, Jesus, there's something about the name. It gives me warms and fuzzies and I love it. There's nothing wrong with loving the name Jesus, but that's not the name God gave him. At the name of Jesus, at Jesus' new name, every knee will bow, those in, the, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What name is it, Paul? And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Why is that important? Because he's quoting Isaiah 45 and 43. Isaiah 43.3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 43, 11. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed that there is no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. To be Lord is to be God. And to declare that Jesus is Lord is to proclaim that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but in essence is God himself. So Paul's use of the term Lord shows us that Jesus Christ is God. He's our God. He's the only God. Therefore, he's our master and we are his servants. Here's the point. If all believers, no matter our backgrounds, no matter our preferences, no matter our differences, if all believers have the same Lord, the same master, we'll be getting our instructions from him. Won't contradict them. We'll agree with each other to follow him. Servants do what the master says, what the Lord says. Can I just encourage you to think deeply about 
whether or not you've committed your life to Jesus as Lord. In 1 John chapter 2, listen to this. This is so penetrating, so clear. John says, By this we know that we have come to know Him. Now, whatever he says next is pretty important. By this, by what I'm about to say, you can know you're a Christian. By this we know if we have come to know Him, that we've come to know Him. Next word, conditional phrase, if. We know that we have come to know Him if, what? We keep His commandments. That's lordship. Jesus' followers honor Him as Lord. He goes on to explain, the the one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word In Him, the love of God has truly been matured or completed, perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Then he gives this final illustration. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That is a terrifying passage. You know why? No one obeys perfectly or enough. That passage comes right after what John said in 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, believers, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you say, oh, I obey Christ completely and fully, no, that's not true. You have sin. Then he goes on, if we confess our sins, presumption that we have sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So put those together. John is not talking about perfection, but progression. If we confess our sins, he's talking about those who want to obey the Lord. And when we don't, we're bothered by that and we confess that sin to our Lord and to our Master. Can I just ask you, is Jesus your Lord today? Does he call the shots in your life? Is he the point of your life, not just a part of your life? Is he he your Lord and master? Many will say to me, Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, this, this in your name? He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. How do you know him? By obeying, John 13 says. I know my sheep, they hear my voice and they obey. Not perfectly, but there's a desire. Which leads us, number five, and this is the last one we'll do today. A common commitment to one common faith. One faith. Mia pistis, one belief, one faith. In the past few decades, we have seen unprecedented attempts to redefine and redirect what it means to be a Christian. What do you have to believe to be a Christian? One way, one faith. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Jude 3, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith 
which was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith is defined, it's knowable, it's singular, it's common, but it's not, it's not whatever you want to believe. It's clearly defined by the Lordship of Christ. All true believers have been saved and converted by the same belief in the same gospel. Listen to what Paul says to the Colossians in a parallel passage. Therefore, Colossians 2, 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in Him, walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith. Romans 3, 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So since indeed God who will justify the circumcised, the Jews, by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one, Jews and Gentiles. Acts 6, 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Jude 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. What you believe. We study this at some length, but here's a test. I want you to fill in the blank. Ready? For by grace you have been saved through faith, through believing not of yourself, so the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one will boast. As believers, we have entered through the narrow door of faith. No one becomes a Christian because you're a good person or a better person than others. No one becomes a Christian because your parents were believers. You were born into the faith. No one was ever born into Christianity. It's because you came to the place where you believe the truth about the gospel. That's faith. Well, experience grace through faith, through believing, through believing what God has done based on what God has said. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe, believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. There's Lord and faith in the same verse. Then you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord? Do you believe that he is God in the flesh, that he rose from the dead, that he paid for your sins with his own death that you deserved on the cross? Will you believe that? Have you believed that? Are you postponing that belief? A little footnote. In the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, Jesus is referred to 92 times as Lord, only twice as Savior. That makes him no less the Savior but it tells you that their emphasis was that he is the master. He's the Lord. And what a gentle and caring and loving Lord. He's not a, he's not a wicked overlord. 
Matthew 12 says his burden is light. This comes together for me, what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4, with an event that you're probably all familiar with. with, It's the reason we call Thomas Doubting Thomas. He hasn't stayed doubting for very long, though. Well, a week. John 20, just listen, verse 19. It was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut. This happens twice in this passage, really odd. The doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. That's so understated. The doors are locked. No one can get in. They think they're safe. And there's a guy standing there who didn't come through the door. And the first thing he says is, chill out. Peace be with you. Don't freak out. That's what that is. That's what it means. And he said, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I send you also. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, 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 one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. I, I always wonder, where was Thomas? Why wouldn't he be there with them? Either out of fear or out of figuring out, but where's Thomas? Was he shopping? I don't know, I don't know. So the other disciples were saying to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger into the place of the nails and my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, after eight days, it's been a week. He was doubting Thomas for a week. His disciples were again inside. And I love how how John says, Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in in their midst and said, peace be with you. Don't freak out. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving. I love the double negative, but be believing. I read all that to get to verse 28. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus talks about you. He said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet, yet believed. 
my Lord and my God, do you have faith in Jesus as Lord and God? You can today. You can experience eternal life and hope after death by believing and having faith in the Lord today. Please don't, don't procrastinate that decision. You don't know what your life extension is like. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In a few minutes, our prayer room will be open. If you want to talk about salvation, please don't put that off. Please. This is real. This is true. And this matters for now and eternity. Father, seal our hearts with this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.